an exciting day for us today because we are in a new section of Matthew. We just finished that section in chapter 18 on the relationships of the disciples among themselves. And uh, Jesus is now on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to die. Uh, he predicted and prophesied that he would suffer and die in Jerusalem. And, and there were many references to that in, in a veiled kind of way. He referenced it already as early as chapter 9 in verse 15, where he said, can the wedding guest, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And so there's this veiled reference there, 9.15. In chapter 12 and verse 39, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But then from chapter 16 onwards, after the disciples knew who Jesus was, remember Peter confessed in chapter 16, verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right after that, if you look, and and why don't you just turn back to Matthew 16 and look at verse 21. It says there, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so Jesus must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be raised. If you look at verse seven, chapter 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day And they, the disciples, were greatly distressed. Well, in our text, Jesus leaves Galilee and he begins to head towards Jerusalem so that all these things can happen to him. Let's start reading in chapter 19 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him, say, tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read what he who created them from the beginning? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, 
but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so, who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. In verse 1, Jesus had finished these sayings, and that's something we've seen three other times already in Matthew. Each major discourse ends in the same way, and we've seen it before. We're not going to look at it uh, again today. Jesus and his disciples, the 12, and likely some others, they went away, verse 1, they went away from Galilee, and they're heading towards Jerusalem, and the next place we're going to see them is in Jericho. Now, Matthew isn't very specific on travel details, but it seems most likely that the the way that they went this time was that they avoided Samaria. They traveled on the east side of the Jordan River through Decapolis and Perea, and then they crossed the river to come back into Judea, which was beyond the Jordan. And so they kind of went the way that most Jews traveled. In verse 2, Matthew reminds us again of Jesus' healing ministry, lest we forget it through all the teaching. He says, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And so they followed him, he healed them, and he was he's on his way to die in Jerusalem, but on the way he continues to heal the sick. But now, in our text, the Pharisees come. And they have a test for Jesus, and their test involves the doctrine of divorce and remarriage. What they want to do is trap Jesus so that he alienates himself from the crowd. They want to get him to say something that they can use against him. And what Jesus gives us here is a wonderful opportunity to study God's design for marriage. Exactly three years ago, in November 2020 to January 2021, we did a seven-part series on marriage. And we talked about the definition of marriage. We talked about the purpose of marriage. I did a message on the wife's role and a message on the husband's role in marriage. And then I did two messages called the thriving marriage, where we talked about the the major issues, the, the big problem areas in our marriages. And how not just to survive in marriage, but how to thrive. And I would kind of refer you back to some of those messages because I'm not going to be able to cover everything today. God wants us to have happy marriages. Marriages that glorify Him. Marriages that picture our Lord's love for the church and our love and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our marriages, if we're married people, our marriages should really be the primary place where we glorify God. The marriage relationship is the primary human relationship. It's above the relationship with one's parents. It's above the relationship even with our children. We're to leave our parents and cleave to our spouse. And then out of that relationship, children also come, but they never really surpass that relationship. The husband and wife relationship is really the the primary relationship. The children will grow up and, and leave the house and cleave to their own spouses. And so marriage is primary. And so our text today is going to speak to us about marriage. It's also going to speak to us a little bit about singleness, which is also for some people. 
And so there's something here for all of us today, even if you aren't married now, even if you're a, a, a kid here listening here, perhaps one day you will be married, or one day you'll realize that God has given you a gift of singleness, and so this will be for you. Either way, this applies to everyone in one way or another. We know married people, and, uh, or we are married ourselves. Now, something else that this text teaches us is about divorce and remarriage. There's really no fuller text in the New Testament on this issue. So if we want to understand Jesus's view on divorce and remarriage, this is the passage. And again, I want to point out that the final message in that 2021 series covered divorce and remarriage in in a more complete way than I'm going to be able to do today. But as we look at this text, we're going to divide it into five sections and each of them focus around the marriage covenant. And so we got five seconds, sections focused around the marriage covenant. First, we're going to see the testing question. The testing question. That's what your outline says. It's, it's the testing question regarding divorce in verse three. The testing question regarding divorce. Look at verse three. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, we need to understand this question in light of the debates among the rabbis of that day. There was two schools of thought. The the majority view on this question was that a man had the right to divorce his wife for any cause. This was the teaching of a rabbi named Hillel. Rabbi Hillel. And most of the Jews of Jesus' day would have held this view. And and this view allowed... A man to divorce his wife for almost, for literally any cause, for spoiling dinner. Um, our Akaba taught that divorce could be legitimate if a man found a prettier woman to marry. And so he found a, a prettier woman, he could get a divorce and, and marry the prettier one. Jewish historian Josephus said, quote, just kind of nonchalant, at this time, I sent away my wife being displeased with her behavior. And then a little bit later, he says, then I took a wife, a woman from Crete. And so this was the the any cause view. And again, that was the view of Rabbi Hillel. And this was the majority view. Now, there was also a minority position at the time represented by the school of Shammai. Shammai taught that the only just cause for divorce was unchastity unchastity. And unchastity included, uh, a, a, you know, a fairly narrow set of sins, but sexual immorality, adultery, but even sometimes lesser offenses. And, and these are a, a quote from a commentary. Um, things like going outside with hair unfastened. That would be unchastity, according to Shammai. Spinning cloth in the street with the armpits uncovered, apparently was unchaste at that time, or bathing, which I, I kind of see this one, but getting a divorce for this, bathing in the same place as men. So those were the kinds of things, but especially sexual immorality or adultery, Shammai said, those are the only causes for divorce. Now, both sides came to this question believing that divorce was permitted. The only really question for them was when was it permitted? What was a valid cause? Everyone divorced, but what was a good reason? Now, the question was open to discussion because I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy 24. 
Deuteronomy 24, really the only text in the Old Testament that speaks about divorce. And you'll see as we look at it, it itself is not super clear about the proper cause for divorce. So Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, there's the cause, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Now, there's two different reasons for divorce in this text. The first one, in verse 1, was because she finds no favor in his eyes. And why does she not find favor in his eyes? Because he has found some indecency in her. Now, indecency there is literally the nakedness of a thing. The nakedness of a thing. And it's used in chapter 23, And verse 14. So just turn back there. Now God tells Israel here to bring a shovel and to dig a hole. And I'm just going to read the text. It says, you shall have a trowel with your tools. This is Deuteronomy 23, 13. You shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, okay, picture you're sitting down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that you may not, so that he, the Lord, may not see anything indecent. There's that word again, among you and turn away from you. And so God does not want to see that. And indecent there is the nakedness of a thing. And so again, this this kind of What is this exactly nakedness? Well, I think we get what it is in Deuteronomy 23, but what's going on in Deuteronomy 24? Well, most understand this in in verse 24, in chapter 24, as some form of uh, sexual immorality. But it would be something that, that falls short now of complete adultery, because remember, the penalty for adultery was death. And there'd be no need for a divorce if the sin resulted in the death penalty. And so that's kind of the first divorce. Now, the second divorce in Deuteronomy 24, um, the woman remarries another man, and the second divorce is because he hates her in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 3. And so there's another reason for divorce in Israel. This man just hates, doesn't like his wife, doesn't doesn't love his wife, we might even say it that way. Now, first, a few things we should note here as we kind of start into this whole thing. First is this is not a command to divorce. This is not a command. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they're saying, hey, why did Moses command divorce? It's not a command here. What this really is is a legislation 
of divorces that were already happening. Divorces were happening in Israel, and Moses put some, some legislation, some restrictions on it. And these laws were likely meant to prevent abuse of the divorce that was happening. And so this law pre- prevents the first husband from marrying his wife after she remarried another man. Whether he divorces her or, or if he dies, either way, there's no going back to that first husband. Now, the purpose of this law is actually a little bit tricky when you think about it. Why would God not want them to go back? And there's a couple of different views on this. The first one is that some think that this is some kind of of divorce for legal adultery that was maybe happening at the time. And so you would get divorced, you would have a new marriage for a while, and then you would go back to your previous spouse when the divorce was done. It's kind of like a legalized sexual immorality. Another view, and I, I kind of lean towards this view, another view is that this is some kind of a scam here to steal a woman's dowry. And the, see, what would happen is the parents of the bride would give the, the woman who's getting married a dowry on her wedding day. And it would be a substantial thing, especially if it was a wealthy family. Sometimes even servants were given, and I think there's examples of that in the in the Old Testament where where women like Sarah had servants. They probably were part of the dowry. And the dowry belonged to the woman, but it was basically managed by her husband once they got married. But if he divorced her for some frivolous reason, she would keep the dowry and it was intended to provide for her in such a case or or to provide for her if her husband died early. But if he divorced her for something scandalous, something verging towards adultery, then he would get to keep the dowry. And so in Deuteronomy 24, the first husband would have kept the woman's dowry because of this charge against her. And then when the other man divorced her because he hated her, then she would have kept the dowry in that case. And it would have been, again, a second dowry probably from her parents. And it could be that her first husband now wants to scam her, maybe even again, of her money. And so the first husband... uh, you know, yeah, again, maybe the first divorce was to steal her dowry again. And so now that can't happen anymore. And actually, Deuteronomy 24 is in a section that's largely dealing with laws on money and business practices centered on the commandment, do not steal. But however we understand Deuteronomy 24, we should note that it does not command divorce. It merely regulates it. It was already happening in Israel in Moses's day. Until Moses's day until Moses required a certificate of divorce, divorce was just verbal. And all a man would have to say was, you are no longer my wife in the presence of witnesses. And if he said that with the witness, it was done. The the divorce was done. Now Moses requires a certificate. And the certificate made it more official. And it also, again, protected the woman. Without a certificate, here's what could happen. An evil man could kick his wife out of the house, and now she's really destitute in that society, and, and then, and then this evil man who's, who's kicked this woman out of the house, when another man comes along and, and, and wants to marry this woman and, and provide for her and care for her, now this, this evil husband could say, hey, that's my wife. 
And that way, he might even be able to scam her from her dowry because he now has maybe caught her in some kind of adultery or, or fellowship with another man. And so in that case, again, she would now have nothing. And so the certificate made this official. And the certificate said, this was the most important thing of the certificate, the certificate said, you are free to marry any man. And so now with the certificate, the lady could say, no, I'm free to marry any man. This is a certificate I got from my husband, and there would have been witnesses to that. And so divorce freed the woman to marry somebody else. That was the purpose of the certificate and of the divorce. And so now that we have some understanding of the historical background, we can start to grasp the testing question. You see, and and we can go back to Matthew 19 here. The Pharisees come with this question, and they don't really want to learn anything. The text, again, says they came to test Jesus. They were, they were really trying to trap him in his answer. And the question about the cause of divorce, it was strongly debated in that day. And everyone believed that divorce was okay, but they differed on the valid reasons. And what the Pharisees want to do is they want to divide some of the people away from Jesus. In their minds, really, whatever he says is going to offend somebody. And they likely also guessed already that Jesus would, would hold the less popular Shammai view that the, naked of a, uh, the nakedness of a thing was some kind of immorality. Plus, they were in Herod's territory at the time. Remember how um, Herod's new wife, Herodias, had divorced his brother Philip to marry Herod? And criticizing that unlawful union is what got John the Baptist beheaded. And so maybe there's something there as well. Maybe they think, hey, well, let's get Jesus in on this divorce thing, and then we can tell Herod about it, and maybe, maybe Herod or Herodias will have Jesus killed as well. And so that's the testing question. Again, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And now Jesus is going to respond to this test. And he uses an accepted method of rabbinical teaching which understood that the more original a teaching was, the weightier it was. And so what Jesus does is he takes them back to the beginning, back to creation. And by doing that, he shows them that their whole premise was wrong. You see, they started in the wrong place by asking, where can I rightly get a divorce? That's the wrong place to start. They should have really asked first, what is God's original intention in marriage. And that's what we're going to look at now. Number two in your outline, the original intention of marriage, the original intention verses four to six. Verse four, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus shows them that they're so out of touch with God's purpose in marriage. Now the Pharisees, they largely held this majority view that that divorce for basically any cause was acceptable. Josephus, who I quoted earlier and got himself a new wife from Crete because his other wife displeased him, he was a Pharisee. 
And Jesus then goes back to Genesis, back to the beginning, to what God created and did in the garden. Jesus goes back to the first marriage. And the first marriage is really the prototype for all marriage. God gave us an example of the marriage relationship, an example for all to follow. What Jesus says is from Genesis 1.27 along with chapter 2 and verse 24. And so keep your finger or keep your, your ribbon in Matthew 19 and turn back to Genesis chapter 1. And let's look at verse 27. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Jesus said, he who made them in the beginning made them male and female. And you know the story, God made Adam, and then he made Eve out of Adam's rib. Genesis chapter 2 verse 21 tells the story there, look at it, it says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In verse 24, which Jesus quoted in our text, and which is the the number one most quoted marriage text in the Bible, Moses summarizes what happened and what marriage is in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus attributes here what Moses said to God, which again shows us that what the Scripture says is what God says is what the biblical author says. There's no really difference there. If Moses says it, it's God's word and God says it. And scripture says it. And so what we are dealing with here is truly God's word on marriage. And, and always when we're looking at the Bible, we're dealing with the very word and the words of God. In the beginning, God made one man and one woman. And he brought the woman to the man and they were literally one flesh. They, she came from Adam's rib. Therefore, in verse 24, it says, a man shall leave and hold fast and be, or be joined to his wife. And Adam and Eve set the pattern for all who come after them. Now, there's only one man and one woman. So you got to think about that a little bit. God didn't make another woman in case it didn't work out with Eve, right? You see that? He didn't make another. It's not, there's like, here's, here's Eve and, oh, and there's Jessica in case it doesn't work out the first time. It doesn't work that way. God didn't make another woman in case it didn't work out. God joined this one couple together, man and woman. Now, again, there were not multiple women, which tells us that there was not supposed to be polygamy. They were not multiple women for divorce or remarriage. There wasn't Adam and Steve, which I kind of cringe to even just say it that way, but it was, it was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were one flesh made for each other and joined together by God. And because of that, we also are to do the same thing and follow that pattern. When we marry, we are joined to our spouse in a one flesh union. From Hebrews 2.24, the Hebrew word there translated in the ESV, hold fast, means 
to cling to or to stick to. In Greek, from Matthew 19, verse 5, the word translated there, hold fast, literally means to glue or to join things together. And so a husband and wife are to stick together like glue. They are joined together as one flesh, and they're to increasingly live out that, that one flesh union in every area of their lives. Again, look at what Jesus said in Matthew 19 um, and verse 4. Let me just go there because there's something missing in my notes here. Matthew, go back. Matthew 19. It says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is leaving the relationship with father and mother to form a new and even a more fundamental relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. And God makes the two of them one, when they enter into this relationship, and it's a, this relationship is a commitment to leave and to cleave, to cling, to, to stick, to hold fast together in this one flesh union. And commitment is really such an important word in the marriage. Marriage is a commitment to be joined as one, and it's a commitment to remain as one. It's a commitment to remain as one. Again, what Jesus says in verse 6, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, joined together there is a different word than the word glue. It means to, to make a pair. And so what God has made a pair, let not somebody, let not man separate. And so God makes the couple a pair. And no man or no person should separate a married couple. Now, Jesus is here showing us God's ideal for marriage. And, and what we see then is that Jesus views marriage as a permanent institution. As we say in our vows, and these are kind of the, the standard wedding vows, at least that I use when I do a wedding, the, the man or the woman says, I, and they say their name, take you to be my wedded wife, or in the case of the wife, to be my wedded husband. To have and to hold from this day forward, to share with you God's plan for our lives, united in Christ for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish according to God's word so long as we both shall live. And this is the commitment of marriage. It's a vow in marriage that I'm going to be united to this person. Now, Jesus has, as he tends to do, he has offended the Pharisees at this point. He started this whole thing off by saying, have you not read? And he also shows that by, by starting with the question, how can I lawfully get a divorce? He's, it's really to start in the wrong place. The place to start is seeing that God has joined me to my spouse and we are one and we are glued together. And from there, we should see the marriage relationship as God designed. It's a picture of the gospel. And we're not going to have time to go here, but Ephesians chapter 5, according to Paul, 
In Ephesians 5, this one flesh relationship is a picture of Jesus Christ's relationship to the church. So that our marriage relationships, the love of the husband for the wife and the submission and respect of the wife for her husband demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church. And the union of marriage then points to the union of Christ and the church. Now Christ will not separate from the church which he purchased with his own blood. He's joined himself to us and we are one body with him. He gave himself for us and he will not leave us. Nor will the true church who knows Christ and knows his love, nor will we ever leave him. He has saved us and we love him and we gladly serve him and we give our lives for him. Jesus has shown the original intention of marriage and and now the Pharisees, they, they think now that they've got him. They, they think that, that the, the trap is laid and they think they found him in a contradiction with Moses. And so this is number three then, the Mosaic regulation. The Mosaic regulation of marriage, verses seven and eight. And so we'll start with verse seven here. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now again, this was from Deuteronomy 24, which we already looked at. And Moses didn't command divorce. In verse 8, Jesus is going to say that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Moses permitted divorce. He did not command it. And they want to know why. If God designed marriage to be permanent, why was it allowed in the Mosaic law? And Jesus answers in verse 8, He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Now, hardness of heart is stubbornness, would be another translation here. It's really because of sin. And this is important for us to recognize. Divorce was allowed because of sin. You know, whenever you see divorce... It's because of sin, right? That, that, there's nothing else involved here. Whenever you find divorce, it's because of sin. If there was no sin, there would be no divorce. If there was no sin, if there was no hard-heartedness, there would be no need to divorce, and there'd be no des- desire to divorce. Divorce is a result of sin. And God, through Moses, recognized the sinfulness of man. Israel, even though they were God's people, they were not all believers, they were not all saved, they were all sinners, and because of that sin, they had all kinds of marriage issues. And the regulation of divorce was instituted to lessen the evil of the divorce that was happening. The regulation of divorce was a concession to human sinfulness. It was never God's will in that ultimate sense. It was a concession to the hard-heartedness and the sinfulness of Israel. Now, even with the reality of sin, God's will in a marriage is that for each partner to be committed to the other one, that they might live together as one flesh and glorify God. Now, as we go to the next point, that was the regulation of, ma- of marriage, the Mosaic regulation. As we go to the next point, I think it's helpful to realize that the law of Moses was in places a concession. 
It wasn't always the fullness of God's holy standard. God's law in the Mosaic Covenant mediated between holy God and sinful Israel. The law taught them God's will for them, but sometimes it also recognized that hard-heartedness was was there, and it, it allowed things that God ultimately didn't desire. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says that the law is for sinners, and the purpose of the law is to restrain sin. The, the law reveals sin. It, it shows us our need of a Savior, and it's a tutor to bring us to Christ. But it doesn't always contain the fullness of what God would want. And that's why when Jesus came to fulfill the law, he institutes his own commandments, which in many ways require us as Christians to go beyond the law and to live even holier lives. And that's where we go to now then. Number four, we see the new covenant modification of marriage. The new covenant modification of marriage in verse 9. Jesus says there, verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now Jesus is making a moral pronouncement very much like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that he came to not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So that when he fulfills the law and brings in the new covenant, it, it comes with its own higher laws, its own set of commandments. And Jesus has given us a law. The fundamental principle of it is that we are to love one another as he has loved us. But part of the law that, that Jesus gives involves this statement of marriage in verse 9. You see, Jesus requires for believers, and, and really it seems here for all people, he requires a higher standard than Moses. And his grace also empowers the new covenant believer to live this out. Jesus empowers us for our marriages to glorify God in them. And so Jesus not only commands us, he also gives us the ability by the Holy Spirit to live for the Lord, to, to fulfill the law. Now we're used to this already, but I want you to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and just see a couple examples of this here. We're used to this, and I say to you, um, Matthew 5 and verse 21, look at it there. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you skip down to verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus says, you have heard. And then he quotes from the Old Testament law, but then he, he puts it aside and, and he goes beyond it and he says, but I say to you, and then he gives us his own commandments. Jesus, as God and as the mediator of the new covenant, gives us new commandments, and specifically here, a new commandment for marriage ethics. 
He does not permit divorce for his saved people, and he really takes us back to the creation standard. He takes us back to a time when there was no sin in the world, when there was no hardness of heart, and he says, this is how you are to live in your marriages. We are to be holy in our marriages. We're to fight sin in our own lives, and we're to love one another even when it's hard in the midst of marriage. Jesus does not permit divorce, and he, and he says to do so is to commit adultery. Now, we're going to see an exception in a moment, but, but to divorce and remarry is to commit adultery. He said that in verse 32 of chapter 5, and he says it in chapter 19 and verse 9. Now, there is an exception in both texts. We're going to come to that, but, but we don't want to be like the Pharisees and start with the exception. We need to feel the weight of God's intention for marriage and of what Jesus says here. He says again, verse 9 of our text, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now let's just leave the exception out for now and just hear it without the exception. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And so Jesus equates divorce and remarriage with adultery. To divorce one's wife, or the other way, if somebody divorces one's husband, and we'd have to go to Mark and Luke to show that, but either way you do this, to divorce and marry somebody else is to commit adultery. Now we need to ask, well, why would that be? And I think the the only really reason that we can come to is because God does not recognize the divorce. He sees the original union as valid and therefore the new marriage and the sexual intimacy that is implied with that new marriage is a form of adultery. You are committing, in that case, you are committing adultery against your first spouse. Now in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and maybe you want to see that with your own eyes, um, and it's really a section I would, I would recommend you read if you want to kind of dig into this a bit deeper. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul gives very similar counsel here. He says, to the married, I give this charge. And then he says, not I, but the Lord. And, and the idea here is, is he's really basing what he says off of the Lord's teaching in our text. And so he says, to the married, I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, where separation there means the, the same idea as divorce. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And so again, there's this idea that if separation happens, remain unmarried, and the aim there would be to reconcile to your husband the wife shouldn't divorce, neither should the husband. Now, Paul says that the Lord says, do not get divorced. And if you do, if you do separate, and maybe maybe we could say maybe that isn't quite meaning divorce, but that word was used for divorce at times. But if you do separate, and this word separate there is the same word Jesus used, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. But if you do separate for some reason, then remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. And so Paul seems to see a situation 
where either separation or divorce could happen among believers, and in that case, there should be no remarriage. And the goal in a case like that would be to be reconciled to your spouse. Again, the idea then is because to remarry in that case, because it's an invalid divorce, would be to commit adultery. Again, the divorce is not valid, and another marriage is an act of adultery. Now, what we need to realize as we think about this is that that this would be very strange teaching for anyone in that culture, whether they were Jews or Greeks. Again, divorce was easy. It was uncommon, and and sometimes it was costly because the the man would, would lose his wife's dowry, but it was easy enough to do. And divorce in that culture was always for the purpose of remarriage. The the certificate said you are free to marry any man. So whenever there was divorce, there was an anticipated remarriage, even as Jesus anticipates that if there's, if there's divorce, it's going to be an act of adultery because he assumes that there's going to be a remarriage when there's a divorce. And so divorce was very common, and the idea of it being adultery was really not on anyone's mind. Every Jew accepted divorce as valid, and with it, remarriage. Again, the only question was, what consisted of a legitimate divorce? And Jesus, in effect, says, no reason is valid. No reason is valid, but then he does make one exception. There's one sin that so strikes against the one flesh union between a husband and a wife that it legitimately could break that union. And that sin is adultery itself or something very close to adultery. Jesus calls it in our text sexual immorality in verse 9. Now sexual immorality is a broad term that could be used for any number of sins in that area. And when one spouse breaks the marriage bond by engaging in immorality with another person and continues to do so, I think we want to say that, that there's an ongoing sense in this immorality that would be happening. You know, really, when you think about it, what can be done with that? What can be done to reconcile that? Your spouse goes and commits immorality and maybe even marries another person. There's no reconciliation possible. And so continued immorality in that way makes reconciliation of the marriage impossible, and the one flesh union in that case is broken by another illegitimate fleshly union. And if that were to happen in a marriage, we would want to remember what we learned in Matthew 18, that we are to forgive as you have been forgiven. And we'd really want to remember everything that we've learned in Matthew 18 about about the, the reality of dealing with the sin that's happening, but also the fact that we should forgive when people turn from their sin and repent. Now, Jesus does not say that divorce must happen in a case like that. He just says that it could. And it's an exception there. That exception clause is really an exception to the whole thing. It's an exception to the divorce and remarriage. Divorce and remarriage is adultery, except in the case of sexual immorality. In that case, it would not be adultery. In that case, the innocent party, 
And we say innocent kind of tongue-in-cheek there. We know that in marriage, nobody's innocent. Both of us are sinners going into the marriage. But, but the party that, that didn't commit the sexual immorality, we're going to call the innocent party. And, and the innocent party could choose to divorce and remarry if they wanted to in that case. And so if your spouse commits sexual immorality, it's possible to get a divorce and in, in some, at some point there to remarry, although we would, we would try as much as we can to seek reconciliation and to make the marriage work even in the case of that terrible, terrible sin. Now, some people think that the exception only applies to divorce and not to remarriage. And actually, I would say there's, there's many views on this. There's, or at least there's a few different views on this. And I tried to cover them more in my other message, uh, a few years ago. But let's talk about this a little bit. Some people think that the exception only applies to divorce and not to remarriage. So that if one spouse continu- continues in immorality, they could divorce, but, but the innocent party could never remarry. And so let me give you some, some reasons against that view. First of all, grammatically, the exception is really in the best place to make an exception for divorce and remarriage. Look at verse 9 again. It says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's whoever divorces and remarries commits adultery. That's, that's what goes together. Whoever divorces and remarries. Divorce and remarriage go together in verse 9. And the exception comes after divorces because that's the reason for the divorce. Sexual immorality in this case is the reason for the divorce. Now can, consider this, and, and you probably have to think a little bit here to do this. Think about this. The, the exception comes after divorces because, again, that's the reason for divorce. But if we put it this way, if we change the wording around and we said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another except for sexual immorality commits adultery. Now, did you hear what, what, what happened there? What does that change do? What, if we move the exception to after uh, remarriage, it, it makes it seem like the purpose of the divorce and the remarriage is for the person to commit immorality. And it seems to, to make it okay to get a divorce so that you can commit sexual immorality. And of course, that is not what Jesus at all is intending. The, the exception really has to go where it is. And again, it accepts both the divorce and remarriage. Another reason why I think, um, the, the, the view that, um, the view that it only applies to divorce but never remarriage. Number two, if one spouse continues in sexual immorality so that the marriage rights can no longer happen, the innocent spouse, the one who is trying to obey Jesus and serve the Lord, they end up with no legitimate recourse if they can't remarry. See, what happens then is the innocent person seems to be punished. Whereas what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is that he wants people to marry. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
The husband should give his, to his wife his, her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. And then in verse 8 he says, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And what I'm arguing here is that the person whose spouse sins against them ends up in the place where they, they can't be with their spouse, nor can they remarry if we have that view, and so they are stuck burning with passion if we hold the view that they can't marry. And Paul says because of temptation to sexual immorality, we should be married. And so what, what's happening is we're punishing the innocent party. Now, some say that with this view that verse 12 of our passage means that a person was made a eunuch by men, by their disobedience spouse's actions. But that's not what verse 12 of our text is saying. And we're going to come to verse 12 in a minute. But Jesus says twice that not everyone can receive this saying. But the view that, that does not allow remarriage requires everyone to whom this happens, your spouse commits immorality and you have to stay unmarried. It, it requires everyone to whom that happens to receive the saying and, and remain single, if you can follow that. If one spouse abandons you for immorality or because they do not consent to live with you, and that's from 1 Corinthians seven twelve to 15, because there are unbelievers in that case, it seems that Scripture teaches that the innocent person can either remain unmarried or they can marry a believer. Now, let me give you a third reason against the no remarriage view. Number three, in that culture, again, the whole purpose of divorce was remarriage. And singleness was was really not a thing. It, It wasn't considered as a valid option at the time. The divorce certificate again says you are free to marry any man. And if Jesus is saying that you can legitimately get a divorce, then everyone who heard him in that culture would have understood him to mean that you can also get remarried with that. That was just the the common practice. And so it would seem that Jesus would have needed to say something more to make it clear that he was allowing divorce but not remarriage because what he would be doing in that case is totally changing the way that divorce functioned in that culture. He would ha- you would have to change the divorce certificate, for example. The divorce certificate says you can marry any man. If Jesus is saying you can't do that, then when he says you can get a divorce but you can't remarry, he would have to say that in, in a more clear way. Now, number four, it was actually required by law to divorce one's wife if she committed adultery. Okay, if your wife committed adultery if, as a Jew or a Roman, it was required by law to get a divorce. That was the culture. If your wife committed adultery or some other form of immorality and you knew about it and you didn't divorce her, according to Roman law, you could be charged with, I wish there was a better word for this, but you could be charged with pimping your wife, because you were allowing her to commit adultery and you didn't do anything about it. And so in the Old Testament as well, remember what would happen in the Old Testament if a spouse committed adultery, they would be put to death and then the marriage would end and remarriage would be allowed to happen.
So what I'm arguing here under the fourth point is that divorce was expected in that culture for any kind of immorality, and it was it was really so obvious to them that that's why I would argue that Mark and Luke don't even see the need to give the exception that Jesus gave that day. And so if you go to the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, you'll see that the exception's not there. It's just because it was just the expected thing that would happen in that case. Another one flesh union outside of marriage or anything like it was considered significant enough to have required divorce. And with that divorce, again, marrying was always possible. Remarriage was always possible. Now again, to kind of go back and remember the main purpose, besides this one thing that we've been talking about, besides this sexual immorality, Jesus is saying there is no cause for disciples of his, or really for anyone else, to divorce or remarry. Jesus wants us to honor God's original design for marriage. Now we're going to go quickly now and try to cover the last three verses. And I called this the other option. The other option. Are you back in Matthew chapter 19? Look at verse 10 to 12 here. The other option instead of marriage, chapter 19 verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now in verse 10, the disciples react to Jesus' teaching. They're so used to the right to divorce, and they recognize... Excuse me, they recognized that what Jesus said could, could really leave them in a difficult marriage. And, and we kind of recognize that situation. They, they're going, we could end up with a, a very difficult marriage here, Jesus. And so they conclude here somewhat hastily, I would say, they conclude it's better not to marry. Now, verse 11 has two possible interpretations. When Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying. This saying could refer to verse 9, what Jesus had just taught on the permanence of marriage, or it could refer to it is better not to marry. Now let's think about this. If, if, verse, if, if this saying refers back to verse 9, then Jesus is saying that not everyone is going to be able to receive his teaching on divorce and remarriage, which if you think about it, really undermines everything that he said. You know, if uh, let me just read verse 9 again. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, but not everyone can receive that. You know, it's, it, it takes like, you know, do not commit adultery, but not everyone can receive that. Do not steal, but not everyone can, you know, some people are going to steal. We don't, that's not, that's what Jesus would be saying if we take this saying to refer back to verse 9. And that's really, as D.A. Carson said, I think he said it's really quite lame. And uh, Jesus never does that. Jesus never says, I say to you, but, you know, ah, there's a lot of hard-heartedness out there. Um, 
So I think it's much better to say, to see this saying as referring to what the disciples just said in verse 10, it is better not to marry. Now, this was very rare. This, this singleness kind of view was very rare in that day. And what Jesus is saying then is that this other option, not marrying, is not for everyone. Not marrying is not for everyone. Now, in that culture, it was, it was common, like every, it was for everyone. Everyone got married. There was, there was very little signal, singleness that happened. But Jesus is saying this option is not for everyone, only for those to whom it has been given. These people, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, they have a gift from the Lord, a gift for singleness, a gift of singleness. And and it it would seem then that, that some people are given this gift and they don't burn with passion like 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says. And they can remain single and they can use their singleness, their freedom in singleness to serve the Lord in, in great ways. Now it's not necessarily better ways, but it's a gift that God has given them to remain single, but it's not for everyone. And in that sense, these people who are, are single in that way, they are in a sense eunuchs. Now they don't, they won't have physical relations with the opposite sex. Now, Jesus then lists three kinds of eunuchs in verse 12. Some people are born that way. They have some kind of a physical defect. Perhaps they can't have relations in that way with a woman because somehow they were born in a a different kind of way, and so they're eunuchs and they're born that way. Some were made eunuchs by men, he says next. And in the king's harem, there was especially employed eunuchs and apparently in other for other kind of official roles in the king's court as well there were there were eunuchs will and i were talking about it before the service this morning kind of these these dedicated men to the king's defense and these eunuchs especially in the harem they were employed so that they could ensure that 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 these men would do nothing immoral with the the king's concubines and the king's wives and so they would care for the king's women but they themselves could not do anything in that realm of immorality and so they were made eunuchs by men they were they were There was a physical action that happened that removed their ability to have relations with women. And I think the Ethiopian eunuch is probably the most famous of those. He would have been a eunuch, most likely, that was made a eunuch by men. Now, the third group in verse 12, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And I think that these are eunuchs like Jesus himself was, or Paul, who s- chose singleness to serve the kingdom of heaven. Now, they don't do any phys- anything physical here. Origen famously, uh, you know, made himself a eunuch to, to serve the Lord in that way um, by doing something physical to himself. That's not what I think Jesus is saying here. It's just that, that they chose singleness to serve the Lord on earth. And it's a gift that they have and only some people are able to receive it. And if you're able to receive it, then receive it. And and these eunuchs remain single for their lives for the glory of God. 
Now to close, let me just say this. Whether we have this gift or no, whether we are married or single, our aim as believers is to honor the Lord in whatever state we're in. And so our aim is to honor the Lord in our marriage, or if you have this gift of singleness, your aim is to honor the Lord in your singleness. But either way, our lives are to honor the Lord and obey His commands. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time in this passage and just all the things that we were able to talk about this morning. Lord, we pray for our marriages, that You would help us to uh, love one another in our marriages, to serve You well, to fulfill our roles, to be one flesh in every area of our lives, that we would be glued together, husband and wife, a pair, and serve You for Your glory. And we pray for any Lord who are here today who may have this gift of singleness. We pray that you would bless them in their singleness and help them to serve you in great ways as they seek to honor you in that state as well. And we pray if there's any who are are thinking about one or the other of these options that you would give them clarity and, and that you would just guide them by your providence, by your will, into whatever state you would have them be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.